Hey everybody, and welcome to the startling, scintillating, smashing, stupefying, sexy, so cool, sixth episode of Superman and Batman. My name is Michael Bradley, and I am your alliterative host on this astonishing adventure of auditory awesomeness. A pragmatically positive podcast where we celebrate the world's finest heroes by looking at terrific team-ups, heroic histories, and daring dramas featuring your two favorite costume champions of all that is right and respectable, Superman and Batman. This episode, the fickle fingers of fate have propelled us back to the wild and waning days of the great golden age, as we'll be looking at a shocking story from the non-alliteratively titled World's Finest Comics... Issue number 75. And it feels strange to me calling this a Golden Age issue. Uh, To me, you know, in my mind, the Superman-Batman stories are purely a Silver Age uh, concept. But for Superman, the line where the Golden Age ends and the Silver Age begins is a very, very wide and very blurry. Uh, And it's much the same with Batman, to be honest. Um... With the line between the Silver Age and Bronze Age, at least as far as Superman's concerned, it's much easier because Superman got a brand new editor. But with the Golden and Silver Age, uh, that distinction just isn't quite as clear. But most people consider Showcase Number 4 as the basic starting point for the Silver Age as a whole. Um, That was the first appearance of the Barry Allen Flash and was published in 1955. And as for Superman most point to Action Comics 241 from 1958 as the unofficially official start for that character. And both books came out after this particular issue. So I guess technically this is the Golden Age still. Even though, like I said, in my mind it feels like we have stepped two feet into the Silver Age. So, World's Finest Comics, number 75, was released on or around January 27th, 1955, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The book was bi-monthly at this time, so it had a March-April 1955 cover date, and the standard at the time cover price of a whole 10 cents. Our cover is by Kurt Swan and Stan Kay. Uh, the last time we talked about Swan on the show was back in episode 1, where... As a relative newcomer to both characters, he penciled the very first Superman and Batman story in Superman number 76. In the less than three years between that issue and this one, Swan quickly became the powerhouse penciler of the Superman line and was penciling no less than half of the Superman-related stories and covers that were being produced for the various comics, uh, which at this time were Superman, Action Comics, Superboy, Adventure Comics, and the newly launched Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, as well as World's Finest Comics, um, with the rest being split between Wayne Boring, Al Plastino, John Cicala, and maybe another artist or two here and there. And that's a rate that Swan would continue, um, and a rate that would even grow for a really long time. It's really amazing when you look at the sheer output Swan did in his career. Uh, just to see how much he was penciling and for how long he kept up that rate. Uh, But this isn't a Kurt Swan podcast. It's a Superman and Batman podcast. So our cover shows Superman and Robin 
leaping out a window and into action to answer the call of a bat signal, while Batman sits in a wheelchair, sidelined by a broken leg. World's Finest Comics number 75, featuring the new team of Superman and Robin. Does this mean I have to change the name of the podcast? I sure hope not, but let's find out. Turning inside, our 12-page story is titled Superman and Robin, and credits are writer Bill Finger, penciler Kurt Swan, inker Stan Kay, and the editor for not just this story but the entire issue was Jack Schiff. Batman and Robin, two names that are always paired. The world knows them as the greatest crime-busting team of all time. Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo. But suddenly and incredibly, the partnership is severed, and all Gotham looks with awe at the exploits of a new crime-smashing combination, the amazing team of Superman and Robin. As we begin, the sky over Gotham City is lit ablaze by the familiar bat signal, a precursor to the arrival of Robin at police headquarters. Commissioner Gordon tells of a vanished armored car that Batman and the Boy Wonder need to investigate. However, the Commissioner is surprised when Superman arrives, saying that Batman is gone, and from now on, Robin will be working with him. What's this? Has the famed crime-fighting team of Batman and Robin broken up? Or has Batman perhaps decided to retire? For the startling answer, we must go back 24 hours. When Batman and Robin arrive at a research laboratory on the edge of town, hot on the trail of the Purple Mask Mob, who are stealing platinum from the laboratory. The dynamic duo confronts the mob, and a fight lacking only technicolor biffs, socks, and pows ensues. Batman and Robin both deliver some solid hits, but a member of the mob throws a strange powder pilfered from the lab into Batman's face, allowing them to make an escape. Batman leaps out the window in pursuit, but loses his balance due to the coughing caused by the powder and falls to the street below. Later, Batman awakes, surrounded by Robin and Superman and his leg in a cast. The Man of Steel tells Batman that he happened along after his fall and set the leg himself, but that it means Batman will be out of action for a while. Apparently, forgetting that he's talking to the most powerful man in the universe, the Dark Knight is concerned about this turn of events, saying that Robin can't take on the Purple Mask Mob alone. But Superman says, no worries. Fortunately, Clark Kent has been reassigned to the Gotham Gazette, which, oh so conveniently, is owned by the same people as the Daily Planet. He'll get Dick Grayson a job as a copy boy, and they'll be ready to take on any criminals, including the Purple Mask Mob, should they be needed. We then flash forward to the next evening, which is just before our story started, when we see the armored car being diverted into a hidden trap door that, that has been built into the highway only to come face-to-face with the Purple Mask Mob. Back to the present, with Robin on his back, Superman soars through the air and uses his X-ray vision to reveal the mob's hiding spot. Superman rips off the huge iron door, and he and Robin charge after the mob, who tries to make an escape via an underground rail car. Robin, in what is probably a lot less of an obnoxiously annoying tone than I read it, says that if Batman were here he'd use his bat lasso to grab the mob. But Superman, being Superman and far more awesome, handles things a little bit different. The Man of Steel pulls up the very rails themselves. He then knocks the crooks from the tracks and uses the rails to bind the mobsters 
as Robin punches one in the face and, to be honest, probably tries to take all the credit. Later, back at the Batcave, Robin is simply bubbling over with excitement about his adventure with Superman. All is not well, though, as Superman laments having absolutely no idea how to find the rest of the Purple Mask mob. And Batman... Well, Batman seems rather forlorn, wondering if Robin will now find crime-fighting with a non-superpowered Batman a whole lot less exciting. Possibly in an effort to get his mind off the situation, Batman starts rearranging trophies in the Batcave in order to make room for new trophies collected during the adventures of Superman and Robin. He soon makes a small space on a stand and tells the new dynamic duo to collect a wristwatch next time they capture a member of the Purple Mask Mob. Both Superman and Robin are puzzled by the odd request, but say they'll do it. The next day, the Purple Mask Mob rigs an explosion in Gotham Harbor in order to cover the heist of a luxury liner. But the Lavender Looters are met by Superman and Robin. While Batman watches the action via closed circuit, easily hacked and conveniently placed security cameras, the Man of Steel and Boy of Wonder charge into action. The mob tries to make a getaway via boat, but Superman gives Robin a little taste of what it's like to be Batman, and in a scene quite similar to what happened in The Mightiest Team in the World, see episode one of the show, Superman uses Robin for a fastball special, and they are able to apprehend the crooks. We then get a panel of Batman, again lamenting that the team of Superman and Robin could surpass the famed team of Batman and Robin. And while that type of thing was was cute and, and very natural at the first time around, this second scene is a bit much and really only serves to paint Batman as extremely insecure, even in this time of, of more simplistic storytelling. But as we can all probably guess, a guy who watched his parents get shot and then deals with that by wearing spandex and punching people in the face, probably not the most emotionally adjusted guy around. So... We carry on. Later, Superman and Robin return to the Batcave, delivering the wristwatch as requested. Batman places the newest trophy and tells them that the next time they should bring one of the Purple Mask Mob's shoes, to which Superman eagerly agrees. Because a watch? Now that's a strange request. But a used shoe? Completely normal. So the next day... A man carrying the payroll for an unnamed business is accosted by a member of the Purple Mask Mob, who is disguised as a balloon vendor. The thug attaches the balloons to the man's coat, causing him to be lifted up into the air, up, up, and away to a height where the other members of the mob are waiting inside a blimp. Clark Kent sees all this go down thanks to his telescopic vision, and soon, atop the roof of the Gotham Gazette, Superman tears a leg off the water tower, super compresses it into a steel wire and a harpoon, and uses it to reel in the blimp. Superman and Robin then go to town with the Hammers of Justice, and soon return to the Batcave with Batman's requested trophy, the shoe of a purple mask mobster. And once more, everyone treats this as a perfectly ordinary request. So, we cut ahead approximately 24 hours to the next evening, as Superman and Robin return to the Batcave, having had patrolled the entire city, but unfortunately not turned up any sign of the rest of the mob. As the new partners discuss how they only need one simple clue or, or a lead of some sort, the dejected duo is interrupted by Batman, who informs them, much to their surprise, 
that the Purple Mask Mob is hiding out in a dog kennel on the south bank of Pine Hill, probably led by Colonel Mustard with a candlestick in the library. Batman explains that the examination of the watch and the shoe revealed trace evidence pointing to the mob's location. And at that point, Superman and Robin realize not only why the Dark Knight asked for the trophies, but that even in a wheelchair, the Batman is anything but helpless. And shortly, in a two-panel sequence so awesome, it would make George Reeves, Adam West, and Burt Ward weep with jealousy, Superman and Robin head out, smashing the crook's hideout, and ending their reign of villainy for all time. Or until the next time they appear, whichever comes first. Returning to the Batcave, Superman tells Batman that now that it's safe, the cast can be removed from his leg. And much to the Dark Knight's surprise, Superman reveals that Batman's leg was never really broken at all. Superman! He explains that the powder that Batman inhaled actually was an incredibly powerful but slow-acting poison. While Batman was unconscious after falling out the window, an X-ray vision scan of Batman's lungs revealed that if he remained active, the poison would kill him. Knowing that Batman would never sit idly by with the purple mask mob still at large, Superman and Robin concocted this whole story about Batman's broken leg in order to keep him on the sidelines. Superman then bids goodbye to his friend Batman, and now former partner Robin, and takes his leave. Once alone, Batman tells Robin that working with Superman must have been really exciting, and nervously asks if he wouldn't rather be working with Superman in the future. But Robin replies that while working with Superman was fun for a while, it wasn't the same as working with the Caped Crusader. And golly, Batman, you taught me all I know. We'll always be a team. And Batman replies, of course we will. Nobody will ever see the end of Batman and Robin. Until about 1984 or so, but we won't talk about that because this is the end. I'm not going to mince words, folks. I really, really enjoyed this one. Up until about page 11. And then the story does something that I really didn't like. And and sadly, the thing I didn't like is a pretty significant part of the story. But fortunately, it's not such a big part of the page count or the, or the panel count that it became a major issue for me. But I'll talk about that in a minute. Because I want to start out on a more positive note. So let's talk about why I liked this issue so much. When Robin was introduced in 1940, which you can hear all about in episode 13 of Legends of the Batman at batmanlegends.com, plug plug, he was done so primarily to give Batman someone to talk to. Um, Bill Finger called Robin the Dr. Watson to Batman's Sherlock Holmes. The genius of it, whether by accident or design, was making Robin a kid. Now, there had been sidekicks before. You had Dr. Watson. You had Tonto with the Lone Ranger. You had Cato with the Green Hornet. Even Sancho Panza. So, that was nothing new. But by making Robin a kid who was the same age as the target readers, not only did it let those readers put themselves into the story, we got to see and experience the sheer joy and excitement he got from Batman's swashbuckling, crime-busting adventures. But Superman, as much as I love Superman, he never had that. Now sure, Jimmy Olsen was gaining a lot of popularity by this time, 
thanks, as I said before, to the TV series. Um, as we'll get to later, his own book was on issue four by this point. But Jimmy's role in the Superman stories was never quite the same as Robin. You could maybe make an argument for the radio show, um, at least the earliest episodes that I covered on the thrilling adventures of Superman. But even then, he, he didn't serve the same function as Robin. So it's great seeing Superman get that and, and seeing a kid's reaction to the awesomeness that is Superman and, and being able to put yourself into Robin's shoes and, and go on adventures with Superman rather than Batman is, is just really fantastic. Um, maybe I can talk more about this later. I don't want to go into it a lot here. But in my mind, Superman... To Robin, Superman should be nothing less than a rock star. He's the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and whatever pop stars, TV stars, and pro athletes are famous at the moment all rolled into one. He's all that, the epitome of fantastic, and he can just do no wrong. And I thought they did a a good job of capturing that in this story. The way Robin is just raving about being able to to go out with Superman and, and have these adventures, to the point that he doesn't even realize that it's kind of being it, – it's kind of depressing Batman. I, I, that was just really great. And I'm super glad that it was Bill Finger who wrote this story because as the creator of – or the at, at least the co-creator of Robin, it, it's completely appropriate. Um, I thought it was interesting that they opened the story sort of in the middle of things and then did a flashback to explain the setup. Uh, that was a lot more uncommon in 1955 than it is today. Unfortunately, what we we uh, what was set up as a moment of surprise when Superman leaps into Commissioner Gordon's office is in effect ruined by the cover and the splash. But still, it's an interesting way to to do the story. And it was nice seeing Commissioner Gordon, much like with Batman and Perry White in episode three, I think it was. I wouldn't have minded seeing more interaction between Commissioner Gordon and Superman, just to get their their reactions to one another and, and how they relate. Um, and of course, we got the final end scene, which is kind of redundant. Uh, we got the end scene, a reassurance that the dynamic duo of Batman and Robin will always be the dynamic duo, no matter how awesome Superman is. It was possibly sweet enough to give someone diabetes, but... It was a nice scene, and and I enjoy the friendship between Batman and Robin. Um, It's a friendship that goes beyond uh, the partnership and the father-son relationship they have. And and it was nice kind of seeing that spotlighted in in a panel or two at the end of the story. Um, Unfortunately, that thing I mentioned earlier that I really didn't like um, was the revelation on page 11 that, hey... Batman's leg was never really broken to begin with. Um, I, my reaction to when I when I read the story for the show here was, are you telling me that Batman, who is one of the smartest men in the world, can't tell his leg isn't broken? And I know what you're thinking. But Michael, it's the Silver Age, or the late Golden Age, whatever. You have to accept the silliness. And that's fine. I'm okay with silly. I'm okay with the fact that Superman throws Robin like a football. I'm okay with the fact that this guy has four balloons and somehow can use them to lift a full-grown adult male high enough into the air that he can be lassoed by a blimp, which 
I looked up, and it could be it. Well, it's probably above a thousand feet. I'm okay with that, but I think there's a difference between maybe not necessary silliness, but there's an acceptable threshold of silliness that's sometimes required to just keep the story moving along or, or provide a moment of excitement. Superman fastball specialing Robin is silly and unbelievable, but it's an exciting moment. The balloon gives the purple mask mob a way to abduct the guy in a fashion that's more spectacular than just, you know, stuffing him in the back of a van. But Batman's leg not being broken does nothing more except make Batman look like a freaking idiot. He's the world's greatest detective, and he can't say, hmm, there's no pain in my leg. Maybe something's not right here. I've broken bones before. Even after they're set in a cast, it still hurts. The exact same story could have been told with Batman actually breaking his leg. Superman and Robin could still round up the Purple Mask mob. You'd still get the Superman and Robin team-up, which is the point of the story. The only thing I can figure as to why they did it this way is that... Well, there there are actually two, two possible options, uh, and I'm not really sure which is more plausible. One, they felt that by showing Batman fall out a window, even due to something that the villains did, and break his leg, painted the character in a poor light or would make the super cruel superhero look bad. Or two, they just didn't want to deal with the idea that with a broken leg, realistically, you know, whatever that meant in 1955 comic books, Batman would be out of commission for two months minimum, meaning Superman would have to cover for him in a lot more than just one case. I think... And maybe this is me looking back, you know, almost 60 years later and, and backseat driving. But I think the latter of the two could be fairly easily glossed over or just completely ignored, for that matter. Kids, the kids who are reading the book at the time, aren't going to think of the long game ramifications of that. It's just us old people on, on podcasts tearing these things apart that are going to look at that. So I, I kind of lean towards them thinking that Batman actually getting hurt made the character look less heroic. But, unfortunately, by doing that, they just make him look like a dope instead. But that's really all I have to say about the writing of the story. Um, thankfully, the, the part about him not actually breaking his leg, while a significant part to the resolution of the story, didn't really affect the main point of the story, which was the Superman and Robin team-up. Um, this was just a really fun story, and, and I enjoy this one a whole lot, even given that so-called twist at the end, which wasn't necessary. And I think something else that helped me enjoy this story is that the art is amazing. Swan, it, it feels a lot like he's aping Dick Sprang at this point when it comes to Batman and Robin, but that's never a bad thing. Um, his Superman... Even though he's not quite to what I envision as that, you know, iconic Kurt Swan Superman, he's a lot closer than in the mightiest team in the world. And the liveliness and energy of the art in this story makes it fun to read. Kurt Swan is not really known for his action art, like his, his fight scenes and the like, but the action scenes on page three and 
6, and, and especially on the top of page 11, are just fantastic. The, the first panel on page 11 shows Superman and Robin busting through the door to the Purple Mask Mob's hideout. It's drawn from the point of view of a member of the mob who is sitting around a table with two other members playing poker. As the heroes break in, you see cards flying and the, the two mobsters whose faces you can see have these great expressions. Uh, they're they're comic booky, but not too exaggerated, so you still get that hint of realism that Kurt Swan brought with his art. And the best part is, Superman smashes in the door, which flies back and knocks a guy right in the face. And you see a glass that he had in his hand fly out and the liquid spill. It's just a really great panel. Now, like I said, the the art is just so energetic and there's just such life to it that it makes the story fun to read which goes a long long way in these silver age books towards hiding any flaws that the story has Um, when you've got exciting art that's going to carry you through any dullness in the story or or i shouldn't say any it's going to carry you through a lot of dullness or off-kilter storytelling There is kind of an oddity with the art, though. If you look at the Batman figure on the cover and compare it to the one on the splash page, you realize that it's the exact same thing, just a mere image. And I don't mean it's it's the same image redrawn, but it's the exact same artwork. And you can tell because on on the splash and in the story, Batman's right leg is broken, but on the cover, it's his left which is what tipped me off, and then I got to comparing, and I'm like, wow, this is the exact same image. Why they did that, I mean, the rest of the cover and the splash page art don't appear to be lifted, at least not from this issue, so it's a real puzzler as to why they would do that. Um, Once again, the only thing I can figure is maybe Swan got behind, and they just you know, didn't have time to to actually redraw Batman, or maybe he was just trying to save time himself. I I don't know which it is. Uh, But either way, you know, still all around, at at least for the most part, both writing and art, just a very, very fun and enjoyable story. Uh, Right now, we're going to take a break, play a couple promos for a couple totally awesome shows that you should listen to, and then we'll be back for the second segment of the show. Nineteen thirty-seven. To keep the increasingly threatening Third Reich from achieving a supernatural doomsday weapon, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt secretly turns to soldier of fortune, adventurer, and World War One hero Ace Kilroy to stop the Nazis from engaging the ageless vampire Count Dracula by any means necessary. in the Carpathian Mountains, and through a life-altering twist of fate, Ace and the undead Prince of Darkness join forces to foil the Nazis' plans. Caught in the middle, an innocent girl that Ace would risk life and limb to keep from harm. But soon enough, Ace learns that Dracula cannot be trusted. Interrupting his well-deserved vacation, FDR re-enlists Ace to locate the reclusive Dr. Victor Frankenstein before the Nazis can benefit from his mad genius. 
little Denise realize that not only would he face the dangers of Frankenstein's patchwork monster, but risk bloody death by a feral beast, equal parts wolf and man. Surviving another death-defying mission, Ace faces threats from home and abroad. While political foes try and track him down and expose his mission, Ace is sent to England, where a series of murders are being committed by an invisible man. Ace Kilroy is a serialized webcomic that launched on Halloween night 2011. The co-creation of writer Rob Kelly and artist Dan O'Connor. Ace Kilroy made a splash with comics and monster fans alike. It was nominated for a 2012 Eagle Award for Favorite Webcomic, and Kelly won a 2012 Philadelphia Geek Award for Comic Book Writer of the Year. Ace Kilroy features adventure, horror, mystery, political intrigue, and romance. Join the fight against evil and support Ace Kilroy. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age, featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Perhaps because it is such a good story, Superman and Robin from World's Finest Comics number 75 has been reprinted a crazy amount of times. The first came in Batman Annual number 7 from 1964. You can usually tell which stories are going to be fun reads, or, or at least significant reads, because they're the ones that get used again before the reprint boom of the late 80s, or even the period in the Bronze Age where they were using reprints as, as filler in backup strips. Uh, the story has also received some recent reprints, first in World's Finest Comics Archives Volume 1 hardcover, Superman in the 50s trade paperback, Showcase Presents World's Finest Volume 1 trade paperback, which is where yours truly read it to cover it on the show here. And finally, in Batman Annuals Volume 2 hardcover, which reprinted the Silver Age Batman Annuals, which were composed of mostly reprints to begin with. So, if you like reprints, DC put reprints in your reprints so they could reprint while they reprint. And there's a meme in there somewhere. Uh, But if you want to hear another podcaster's take on this story, 
check out episode 167 of Billy Hogan's Superman Fan Podcast, where he covered it as part of his chronological coverage of Superman's Silver Age. Given that this is only the fifth team-up from World's Finest Comics, Billy covered it way back in early 2011, but you can still find that episode online in addition to about 3,000 other episodes of Billy's show, because he's an absolute podcasting machine. Um, Superman and Robin is the lead story in World's Finest Comics, number 75, and that's followed by a six-page Green Arrow story, illustrated by George Papp, titled The World's Most Famous Arrows. And after that is a six-page story featuring the Western hero Tomahawk, and that's titled The Battle of the Medicine Men and was illustrated by Bruno Primiani and Ray Burnley. Neither Mike's Amazing World of Comics or the Grand Comics Database list a writer for either the Green Arrow or Tomahawk stories, which I found kind of weird. Um, Other features in the issue include a Jerry the Jitterbug gag strip, which I'm sure was a lot funnier in 1955, a two-paged text piece titled Have You Ever Wondered?, where they ask various questions like, why are blind people so quick at hearing? And why does lightning strike some things and not others? And then they give a scientific, air quote, scientific answer to those questions. I don't know. I was trying to be snarky there, and I I totally lost my train of thought. Um, But there's also a one-page Supergram, the Superman puzzle game, in which you are given clues, and you have to figure out various words, and then unscramble letters from each word to find in another word. And I'm actually going to post this on the site in the show notes at greatcrypton.com in case you need something to keep you busy for, like, four minutes. Um, as for ads, again, the standard fare. you got your pyramid schemes, your bodybuilding, junk toys. Uh, but we do get another public service announcement. Unfortunately, not as neat as the flag history from a couple episodes ago. But it talks about the United Nations Food and uh, what is it? United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization killing locusts in Iran so that crops can grow. Once again, another thing that was probably far more exciting back in 1955. But you know what's always exciting, no matter what year it is? A trip in the time machine via Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com. And best of all, you don't need 1.21 gigawatts to use it, or a dime to buy the comic. Since technically the Silver Age hasn't started yet, but the Golden Age is, to be honest, quite a ways behind us in the rearview mirror, we're still kind of in that limbo period. Um, This is after the institution of the Comics Code, though, so unlike the books that we, or the other books that were on the stands alongside Superman number 76, Uh, The crime and horror books are gone, but there are still lots of funny animal, western, romance, and what will be considered um, licensed books today. Interestingly, though, it was a pretty big month for the world's finest heroes. Superman, Action Comics, Superboy, Adventure Comics, World's Finest Comics, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, Batman, and Detective Comics all had issues this month, which... I think is a first for the show. Batman and Robin appear in Detective Comics number 217, as well as Batman number 90, where the dynamic duo encounter a young hero named Batboy. 
who is a kid with a bat. A baseball bat. And I am not kidding you on that. Superboy appears in Superboy 39, and what is probably the most important issue of the month, Adventure Comics number 210, where Otto Bender and our very own Kurt Swan introduce the greatest superpowered dog of all time, Crypto. But don't worry about fans. Spurred on by the popularity of Crypto, the Dark Knight will get his own canine companion with Ace the Bat-Hound in about four months. But Crypto is still cooler, and I'm sure J. David Weider will back me up. Superman number 96 has an Al Plastino cover, where Superman takes on Mr. Mixtius Pitalik, or I guess at this time it was still Mr. Mixtius Tipalik. Uh, this issue also has a story where Superman performs surgery on a blind girl to restore her sight, which is kind of crazy. Uh, Superman also appears in Action Comics 202, and finally, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 4, which is notable because it contains a story titled King for a Day, which either inspired or was adapted from a Season 3 episode of Adventures of Superman by the same name. Probably, given filming dates, the comic was adapted from the episode, even though the comic was published before the episode aired. Um, But that does it for this episode, folks. Remember to keep writing in. Let me know your thoughts on the show, the stories I've been covering, uh, if you have a story suggestion. If you haven't left an iTunes review, please do so. It really does help other people find the show and know that it's totally worth listening to. But that's it for me. I will be back next episode with another fantastic Superman and Batman team-up. Until then, I hope you have a great one. Take care, and I will talk to you next time. Goodbye. listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman. 
featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Music that closed out this episode was the Queen classic "You're My Best Friend" from their 1975 album "A Night at the Opera." If you like this song, and really there's no reason why you shouldn't, I'd like to suggest you head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner on their site. Buy the song or the album or, well, pretty much anything else Amazon has to offer, and Two True Freaks will get a little commission off every purchase. Not only will you get good music for your library, but it won't cost you anything extra and help support one of the greatest podcast families out there.